Thank you, brother. I'm glad you played all the stanzas of that song. A lot of the old hymns are basically just sermons that rhyme. (laughs) I've titled the message this morning, uh, The Birth of the New Testament Church Through the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Birth of the New Testament Church and it happens through the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit, we're starting a series on the New Testament church. We're going to start in the book of Acts. I'm going to read Acts 1, verses 1 through 14. Then I'm going to jump over to Acts 2, verses 1 through 4, because those portions are connected. And will you follow along with me while I read? It says this. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said... You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. When he had said these things, as They were looking on. He was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, which is near near Jerusalem, a, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Now to chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly... There came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in their tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. This is the Word of God. You can be seated. As you're being seated, I'd also like to pray before I start. Father, I thank you for the fact that we can be here. Many brothers and sisters around the world aren't afforded such a luxury. So, Father, thank you that we can be here together without fear of persecution, at least not yet. So, Lord, help us to capitalize on times like this. Lord, I pray that you would also capitalize on this time by moving in our midst, Lord, moving in the hearts of those who don't yet know you, Lord, to draw them and save them, convince them of the truth and convert their souls. And Lord, I pray for those of us who do know you that you would be helping us to walk in greater love and obedience to you. And Lord, please, of course, give us a greater and greater hatred of our own sin, which hinders us from this wonderful work and you. Give me grace now to preach the truth 
boldly and lovingly, accurately. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you all again for joining us this morning. So glad that you're here, really, each one of you. Well, we didn't realize just how good we had it, my sister and I, growing up. Um, The truth is, my sister and I grew up in a very stable and a very safe and a very loving home. My parents are still married, have been for almost 50 years now. Also, my grandparents on both sides, my dad's parents, my mom's parents, both of them were married for over 60 years before they passed and still have one grandmother living, thankfully. But the truth is, we were just exposed constantly to safe, stable, loving people that really lived by godly principles. Again, not perfect, but when compared to most of the world, we didn't realize how good we had it. There was just little to no drama. There was just little to no divorce on either side of the families. There was some, but for the size of our family, which is very large, uh, it's funny, my granny when we were having our, I think, fourth or fifth child, she said, why are you having so many children? Who herself had five children. And I was like, Granny, what? you have five children. She, she said, I know, and it was hard. That's why I'm saying, why are you having so many children? <laughs> so we have a large family because a lot of people have had a lot of children. And so percentage-wise, for how large we are, there's just been very little divorce on either side either. Now, where am I going with this? As my sister and I grew up and we started to get around other people and maybe spend the night with certain people and friends and get through high school and then get into college, we realized, wow, we're actually not the norm. We didn't realize that this was actually pretty exceptional, what we had grown up in. It's rare and unique and special. And so once we realized that, of course, we were very thankful. And then, of course, after we got saved, we were even more thankful. Um, But just to be among families, just to be in families where really love is the driving force and godly principles are taken seriously, um, it made us want to perpetuate that in our own families, seeing just how rare and special this is. Let's keep this going and let's guard this because this is, a, this is a precious thing. Because the truth is when you've always been around something and that something is really extraordinary, it's not until you see lives without it um, and how negatively they're affected by the lack of it that you take a much more appreciative look upon that something that you do have. Well, Christianity is unique and special among other religions of the world. Those of you who haven't had much exposure to anything else uh, might not realize just how different it is from other religions of the world. Um, When you're not exposed to much else, you can take things for granted, just like the example I brought up. So let's talk about the, first of all, I want to talk about the uniqueness of Christianity um, as we later move into talking about the birth of the church because they tie together naturally. Number one, Christianity, listen to this. this is, Christianity is unique of the religions of the world because it's the only real, true 
religion of the world. Now I realize something. If I was on TV and said this, that would probably make the news. I would be just lambasted as a narrow-minded, just choose your adjectives, right? And we know this. We know that we make, actually no, we don't make it. We know that this Bible, God himself, makes very bold claims about the exclusivity of Christianity, about the exclusivity of the truth. There's one truth, and all truth is God's truth. And so it's the only religion, I say that because it's the only religion that actually connects you to God. It's the only religion that actually connects you to God. That's why I say it's the only real one. The others are inventions by men or demons or a combination of both. All other religions on planet earth that are not this way, by grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus Christ alone, based on the scriptures alone, they're all imitations or inventions, all of them. And that's just the truth. Number two, the thing about Christianity, its rareness and uniqueness and why it's so special and why it should be guarded and mimicked and um, perpetuated here on planet Earth is Christianity is unashamedly and unapologetically Trinitarian. Um, before I go any further with that, when I say the word Trinity, what I mean by that is this, because I've learned, you just throw phrases out there and assume people know what you're talking about, you'll, you usually get yourself in trouble. When I say the Trinity, this is what I mean, and this is what the Bible means by that teaching. Now granted, I understand you won't find the word Trinity in the Bible, but guess what? You don't find the word Bible in the Bible either. When I say Trinity, I mean one God who eternally exists in three persons. Every one of those words in that sentence is important. One God who eternally exists in three persons. Why is every word of that important? Because there are other groups out there that will also claim to believe in the Trinity who say that Jesus Though he is deity, they'll say, yes, he was created. And so the fact that we say he eternally exists as three persons is vitally important because we don't believe Jesus was created. Why don't we believe that? Because the Bible doesn't teach that. And so when we say Trinity, that's what we mean. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, there are three persons who eternally exist as one God. Not three gods, is the Father God? Absolutely. Is Jesus God? 100%. Is the Holy Spirit God? Yep. But they're not all God separately, though they are all God. Again, we are, we are touching an area that is a God area with feeble minds. We're unique in this way. We're not polytheists. What does that mean? Poly means many. Theist comes from the Greek word theos, which means God. So we don't believe in many 
gods like the Hindus. They believe in thousands of gods. We don't believe in many gods like the ancient Greeks. Maybe you were in high school and had to study the, the ancient Greek gods or in college you had to study those. And we're not like those religions. We don't believe in many gods. We, again, we believe in one God who eternally exists in three persons. We're also unique among other monotheists. What's that mean? Mono means one, theist, again from theos, God. There are other religions that also believe in one God. The two other major world religions that also believe in one God are Judaism, the Jews, and Islam, Muslims. They also believe in one God. But we don't necessarily get excited when we hear that because, again, there's only one way to God, and it's through Jesus. You might say, well, but, but the Jews, they believe in the God of the Old Testament, Cohen, so that's good, right? I mean, that's, that's at least part of the way there. Well, to be part of the way there doesn't mean you're there. And just to know about God doesn't mean you know God. Jesus said in, eight, in John 8, 19, he said to the Jews, he said, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you'd know my father also. He also said in John 15, 23, whoever hates me, hates my father. So we can't say, we can't get excited when we hear about the Jews either because they're also lost because they don't trust Jesus is the Messiah. Therefore, they definitely don't believe he's God. And of course, we know that Muslims, they believe in Allah. And if you've read the Quran, I haven't read all of it, but I've read enough of it to know that, wow, this is very different. <laughs> we know also that they don't believe that Jesus is God. Even the Jesus they believe in is different than the Jesus the Jews think they believe in. He's, he's definitely a different Jesus of the scriptures. And yes, they believe in one God. Actually, to become a Muslim, did you know this? That you have to say this phrase, there's no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet. That's what you have to say to become a Muslim. Of course, you have to mean it. So just me saying that doesn't mean I just became a Muslim, everyone. No, and it's not like a phrase you have to be afraid. Like, don't say it or your, your tongue will fall off. You know, it's not something like that. But you have to say that phrase to be a Muslim. And if you say it and mean it and start following their ways, then, then you're in. And, and that's it, really. So there are other monotheists, but we are unique among even other monotheists because we are unapologetically Trinitarian. This is so very important that we get this. The church was born through the working of all three persons of the Trinity. And I want to try to convince you that of this morning because you can be in something and not realize how special it is, okay? And so I want to show you just how special and unique and wonderful it is that you were birthed out of the Trinity working together to birth you into the family of God. Christianity is so unique in that way. We owe our existence to our triune God. I want to point out how each of the person of the Trinity was involved in the birth of the church. You may have picked up on it even when I was reading. You may have said, oh, 
I, I see that. Oh, I see this. Hey, what do you know? All three persons of the Trinity are mentioned in there. In case you didn't see it, we're going to go there and look at it. But there's, there's three points I want to bring up. There's three things that I want to show you, um, and we're going to walk through these, as to how each person of the Trinity works in the birth of the church. Look at this. I made a slide for you. So the church was birthed. The church was born by obedience to Jesus' command, which we're going to look at, while praying to the Father, and then through the moving of the Holy Spirit. All three persons were at work when the church was born in the New Testament 2,000 years ago. To start off with obedience to Jesus' command, look at Acts 1-4. In Acts 1-4, it said, And while staying with them, he, that's Jesus, ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So in order to receive the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, which we call the birthday of the church, by the way, um, if you define church, if you define that as any saved person throughout all time, okay, I, I, I get that. But when we see the word church used, it's the word ecclesia in Greek, which is where we get in Spanish, iglesia. It comes from that Greek word ecclesia. It means called out ones. Those who've been called out. Called out of the world, called out of darkness. That happens by faith in Jesus Christ when you're made a new creation in Christ Jesus. So this church, this word church, which by the way, is mentioned almost 20 times in the book of Acts. Almost 20 times we find it. I think it's 19. Prior to that, we only see it in two different verses in the book of Matthew. And then all of a sudden, it just blows up in the book of Acts. Why? Because it was the birthday of the church as we know it today, the New Testament church. And it started with obedience to Jesus' command. You know, in order to obey Jesus' commands and actually receive any benefit from that, something is implied there. You have to believe him. You have to believe that what Jesus is saying is trustworthy, beneficial, worthwhile, worth your time at all. Right? So you, church, you're not going to, though maybe birthed into the family already, you won't progress anymore at all without obedience. If they had not obeyed Jesus' command and gone to Jerusalem where he told them to go, they would not have received the Holy Spirit. You're not going to walk in disobedience to the word of God and receive the blessing of God. That's not going to happen. I know we want it to be the other way. We do. Think back to when you were unsaved. You want. You still wanted God's blessing upon you. You still wanted good things to happen to you, right? But what did you also want? You also wanted to do what you wanted to do, when you wanted to do it, with whom you wanted to do it with. And you didn't want anybody to tell you otherwise, right? And if somebody did tell you otherwise, you probably got all sniffy with them, just like I did, right? And so there's no receiving the blessings of God without walking in obedience to God. That makes sense. The great thing about when you get saved is this. You actually want 
to obey the word of God. You see the benefit of it, don't you? And you love this God who's giving it to you. And you realize the only reason that you're even in the family is because of this God, because of the Lord Jesus. And so you want to believe his word. You want to, and you want to walk in it. It's when our wants are contrary to that that we get in trouble. It's when we start going after sin because we've seen something else that we want instead of obedience to the word of God. And if you're there, if you're, if you're saying, Cohen, I've got a problem with my wants right now. I've been there. I get that. Even in my saved state, I've been there. And let me tell you, the problem's, you, the problem's not usually this. It's not usually necessarily what you're doing. It's usually comes out of a lot of things you're not doing. Really. That's, I'm telling you the pattern, okay? I'm giving you a, a Christian life hack. The longer you're away from the Word of God, the longer you're away from church, the longer you're away from prayer, the more your habits move you into exactly what the enemy wants and exactly what your flesh wants. Fight it. You have to fight it. If you're not fighting it, if you're, if you're in neutral, you're actually going backwards. You are. <laughs> if you're coasting, you're coasting backwards. I promise you, as someone who loves you and wants to tell you the truth. So obedience to Jesus' command was the first thing that was necessary for, for the church to be born. Now, let's look at also verse 14, because the early church, and it lists all their names, we see all 11 of the apostles, because remember at this point, Judas has already hanged himself. That's actually the second, that's actually the focus of the second part of chapter one, is replacing Judas with a gentleman named Matthias. And so the 11 are mentioned, also some godly women are mentioned. And what are they doing? Look at verse 14. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. Devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. So they are praying to the Father. They're devoting themselves to it. When you're devoted to something, that's more than just, I think this is cool, right? Or I like this a little bit. It's a lot more. Like, more than likely, I can say this about the married couples in here. You're devoted to your spouse. You're devoted to him or devoted to her. Now, granted, you might be thinking, well, that kind of goes up and down. I wish it was more. I get that. Yep, I get that. We all have room to grow, don't we? And God helps us with that. But you are devoted to that person. It's more than just a like, more than just a hobby. This word implies a lot. Prayer was a big part of who they were. And so they were focused on this. They were doing this. They wanted to do this. They were glad to do it because it says they did it with one accord. No one's having to drag the other person along. Come on, man, pray. I don't really want to. Now I need to go get my sandals fixed. No. Nope. <laughs> now, they wanted to. They were of one accord in this. Praying with devotion. And we know that all prayer is focused on the Father. Because just like we learned last week, how do we start the Lord's Prayer? Our Father. We pray to the Father through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. All the persons of the Trinity are involved when you pray as well. Did you know that? You can't pray without any one of them. 
You need them all. And so they're praying to the Father. And they're also trusting the Father. Go back to verse 4. It says, Jesus gives them a command. And he says in the second part of verse 4, but to wait for the promise of the Father. So they were praying to the Father while also waiting for the promise of the Father. Listen to what this gentleman, he's the 16th, no, no, 17th century. I always get those mixed up because you've got to say the century before the one that you mean, you know. Okay, in the 1600s, this gentleman, he was a Puritan. He lived. His name was Thomas Goodwin. Listen to what he said about this promise of the Father to come. He says, Our Savior Jesus Christ was the great promise of the Old Testament, meaning the Messiah. They were waiting for him to come. But the Holy Spirit is the great promise of the new. You that believe are to wait for the promise, meaning these these New Testament uh, Christians. As the Jews waited for the coming of Christ, so they waited for the coming of the Holy Spirit into their hearts. So these New Testament Christians, they had a promise. The Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. And they had the Messiah, but now they were waiting for the promised Holy Spirit. Who was promised to come, Jesus says, by the Father. Praying to the Father, trusting in the promise of the Father. And our birth into the church happens through the moving of the Holy Spirit. In chapter 2, the day of Pentecost comes. It's 50 days after the Passover. They were all together in one place. I'm thinking it was probably that same upper room, perhaps. It mentions a house, so it may have been a house that was different from the upper room. Not 100% sure. But they're all together, more than likely praying again. They were of one accord. Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it fills the house where they're sitting. Divided tongues as a fire appear resting on them. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now this is different from what we've seen before, ever, in the Bible. Almost every single time that we see the Holy Spirit coming upon someone, it's that exact phrase that's used in the Old Testament. He comes upon them. They do some great act, prophesy in some mighty way, and then he's not upon them anymore. This filling of the Holy Spirit is a really big deal. Now granted, those of you who are in the faith, when you got saved, you were filled with the Holy Spirit that day. So you've always existed in this state as a saved person. But I want you to know that it wasn't necessarily always that way. Under the old covenant, again, they were waiting on the Messiah to come. They were still saved, but they didn't have exactly what we've got. I think that's why even Jesus said things like, Abraham rejoiced to see my day, but didn't see it. There's something about being in the new covenant. Actually, there's a lot of things about being in the new covenant that are so much better than the old. Just read the book of Hebrews. That's his whole point, is this new covenant and this Jesus Christ is better than what the old covenant had. And so we're in such a blessed state. And this is why I want to point these things out. This is the promise of the Father fulfilled. Do you know what this means about the Father? It means he keeps his word. It means he's trustworthy. It's good for us to know too, church. It's good for us to know too. Did you know that most of you struggle with fear 
in some way. Most of you do. Most of you struggle with some type of fear or some type of anxiety, which anxiety is rooted in fear. But you know what fear comes from? I've taught you this in the past. Uncertainty. Doesn't it? What if all those things? That's, that's really 99% of our fear just comes from uncertainty. You know what fights uncertainty? Trusting in a sovereign God. Because the uncertainties are still there. Guess what? The uncertainties are still there. But it, it keeps those uncertainties from crippling you. Because you say, I trust that God knows what he's doing here. I know that this is going to eventually work out. I don't see how it's going to work out now, but I trust that God is going to come through and everything's going to ultimately be okay. You can only say that, though, if you trust him. If you don't trust him, you don't have that assurance and you don't have that fear-killing faith. Because you're just like, I don't know, I don't know, maybe, maybe, I don't know, maybe. Well, that doesn't cut it. It doesn't. It doesn't cut through your fear and cut to the heart of the problem. So if you would say to me, in answer to this question, if you would say yes, then I'm going to follow it up with something else. And I've, I've done this before, but I'm just, I just know that there's someone who's not yet heard this. Is God trustworthy? If you answer that yes, then I'm going to follow it with this, then trust him. If he's trustworthy, then trust him. He showed himself trustworthy here. Why? Because the promised Holy Spirit came. He really did. He really came. And this is the people of God, not only having the Holy Spirit upon them, but being filled with the Holy Spirit. And the Bible tells us that he's the seal until the day of Christ Jesus. We're sealed with the Holy Spirit until the day of Christ Jesus, meaning he's never going to leave us. And again, some of you might be thinking, Cohen, not a whole lot original in this sermon. I've heard this. I know these, I know these things. Thanks for bringing them up again, but I know these things. Yeah, you do. But I'm trying to tell you, this is unique. No other religion on planet Earth has this. None. You know why? Because they're all false, except for this one. This is the only true one. This is the only real one. And so I'm trying to show you just how good you've got it. You've got it really good. You've got this Trinitarian God who's working together so that you can be born again. <laughs> and that's so wonderful that he would also leave the Holy Spirit with us. And what was the purpose of all this? What was the purpose of the Holy Spirit coming upon the church while they were praying to the Father and because of obedience to Jesus Christ? What was the purpose of the Holy Spirit and the Father and the Son doing all this work on that day and birthing the New Testament church as we now know it? Well, you might know that Luke starts this saying, in the first book, O Theophilus, I said X, Y, and Z. Well, his first book was the book of Luke, which ended with Jesus saying, go into all the world, preach the gospel to all creation, and we sort of get a uh, condensed version of that. You'll be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, other parts of the earth. 
What was the point of them being born again and having the Holy Spirit upon them? To be witnesses for Christ. To spread the truth. To create disciples that the kingdom of God would come and that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, like we learned in our last sermon series. Realizing what a rare and special thing my sister and I had made us want to perpetuate it. And realizing what a special and rare thing we've got as Christians makes us want to perpetuate that too. It makes us want to make disciples. We're sharing the gospel with a gentleman at the pregnancy testing center this last week. And I told him, as you guys have heard the saying, I'm just a beggar trying to tell another beggar where I found some bread. And uh, he liked that. (laughs) But that's just the truth, isn't it? We said, hey, we found life. We found truth. We found hope. We found light. We found freedom. And I want to give that out to other people. Because it would be wrong of you to have all that and not want to give it out, right? The great thing about the Holy Spirit, when he fills you, he fills you with God, essentially. And so you start to think like God. And God wants people to know God. So the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, they all play a part in your salvation, and therefore you being a part of the church has a purpose. Each one of them in the early New Testament church had a role to play too, which we're going to see as we keep going on with this sermon series. But it wouldn't have happened had you taking any part of the Trinity out of this equation. You and I, because we're in the church, we want to perpetuate the good news that man can be reconciled to the Father and he can be reconciled and forgiven of his sins because he sent Jesus Christ into the world who kept the law on our behalf because we're lawbreakers and who took the wrath of God upon himself that we deserved And we're convinced of these things through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's the one who convicts us of sin, convinces us of this truth, and then converts our souls. You're in the church because of the Trinity. And knowing that wonderful truth, we want to give that out to other people. The birth of the New Testament church was birthed through the Trinitarian work of our God. And let me end with this. I want you to see that, all these truths that I just said. I want you to see it, and I want you to appreciate it. And spread it as you share the good news with others so that they can also enter into our family. Because that's what it is. One big, wonderful family. Is it not? Father, we're grateful for the fact that we have this wonderful truth. Thank you, Lord, that it's a simple truth. And it's a powerful truth. And I thank you for reminding us of it again. That you are a Trinitarian God. Unique. Alone holy in your being. And we thank you that you have adopted sinners like us into your family through your Trinitarian work. Lord, thank you that we can call you Father because of what Jesus did for us on our behalf, which you made real in our hearts through your Holy Spirit. We love you. And because he gets us into your presence, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.